Hi, welcome back to the CIO Show. I'm David Binning, Associate Editor CIO. It's been a great deal of discussion lately about the potential for technologies like artificial intelligence, machine learning, and others to reveal deeper insights into workforces. In much the same way as these tools are being applied to study markets and consumer buying behaviours, they're now being considered and applied in a small number of cases at least to better understand workers, how they're feeling, and of course, inevitably what they're doing. It makes sense then that HR seems to be getting on board using technologies like AI for speeding up onboarding of new recruits to charting staff career trajectories, sifting through resumes and even trying to assess staff mental health and morale and preempting staff departures. Naturally, senior executives are interested to better understand how staff are performing and what might be done to help them be better. Of course, this inevitably means developing solutions for knowing what they're thinking and their movements. So just like with any deployment of AI, the burning question must be asked, where's the line between what could be done and what should be done when it comes to deploying this technology to analyze staff at work? Joining us now is Robert Hillard, Consulting Leader, Deloitte Asia Pacific. Rob, welcome back to the CIO Show. Thanks, David. Also coming back to the show is Nikki Doble, CIO 50 alumnus and Group CIO with Global Insurer Covermore. Nikki, welcome. Hi, how are you? Very good, very good. And also joining us is Jim Stanford, who is Honorary Professor of Political Economy with the University of Sydney and Director of the Centre for Future Work with the Australia Institute. Jim, welcome to the CIO Show. Thank you, David. Very glad to be here. Wonderful. Rob, I thought we'd kick off with something that you and I were discussing the other day in that there seems to be this intensified focus on output as opposed to time. And this is a trend that's been in train for some time, but we're certainly seeing it accelerating. You're certainly seeing it accelerating throughout the pandemic, which we, uh, we, we, used, to be, we used to say when the pandemic was happening, but for us Sydney siders, of course, it's still happening. That's right. The, 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 the pandemic seems to be the gift that keeps giving uh, or, or a ping pong ball that bounces around, bounces around the world. Yeah, I think that's more appropriate. But yes, you're, you're absolutely right, David. We're seeing um, acceleration of a whole lot of work trends. And, and for years now, as more and more work has moved to the intellectual, you know, work of the hands to work of the head, uh, and we see more of the work being about non-routine activities, exception management, um, intervention, customer service oriented, uh, that it kind of makes sense to stop valuing people just by the effort they put in mm. and value them by what they achieve. And certainly there's been a longer mantra that, um, you know, wouldn't it be good if we, uh, if rather than clocking on and clocking off, we focused on, um, on, on measuring outcomes. The, what we've seen through COVID with, the vast, a vast number of people working remotely, working from home, is an acceleration of, of that trend. And a lot of employers have been really wonderful with their people in helping them to be flexible. But there's a, but there's a downside, and, and, and the downside that I caution people on is if what we're doing is saying we're going to measure you by the outcome, yeah. and if we have lots of competitive, ambitious people together, there's this perverse incentive to effectively understate the amount of time that you're putting in. You know, yeah. work is always there. I can get onto it. And I call it outcome inflation. It's where the expectation goes up. And management's not necessarily making, is not necessarily being malicious in just assuming that uh, people can do more because they're seeing this output. They just don't necessarily have enough line of sight to, you know, this, incre- this inflation of effort that's required. It's, it's really no different to what we've seen with other forms of gig work, piecework. You know, garment industry has, has had this problem for a very long time. 
I mean, Nikki, as as a CIO of a of a global organization, what what are you seeing in terms of that that trend and some of those points that Rob's outlined there? Yeah, I, I, I like the the idea of being outcome focused rather than you know necessarily output focused, and 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 certainly when you look at some of the innovation frameworks, that's what they they aim for. Um, and from an AI adoption point of view, corporates are always looking to sell more, and you know they're, they're on the AI bandwagon from that point of view. But with Rob's point, I found really interesting in that there's this overinflation, and and because the the issue I think for me, or or the the concept that I struggle with is is how leadership takes a role within AI and how we're using or working with our employees as we do that. As you know, to Rob's point, if we know that that might happen, that outcome or output inflation is going to happen. What are we doing to prevent that before that arrives? You know, what what parameters are we putting around, or what guidance are we we doing? Or are we just going to kind of race into this and go, this is a great idea, yeah. uh, rather than really kind of thinking about the ethics before? I think you know those sorts of things catch up after the technology, which is always a problem. Yeah, sure. Just bringing you in there, Jim. I mean, what are, what are your thoughts there? Well, one thing to think about, uh, David, in terms of this flexibility and working from home and so on, is that it really describes a relatively small portion of the total labour market. Uh, you know, the, the jobs of information professionals and others who do most of their work on computers are not frankly, the typical job in the labour market. Uh, Our research suggested maybe a third of Australian workers could do most or all of their work from home. And many of those tasks are not those sort of kind of creative, autonomous, self-governed jobs that we've been speaking of. Even some of those jobs are relatively routine clerical and administrative functions, which can be performed from home. And the majority of people in the labor market have to go somewhere else to do their work, whether it's a a retail shop or a cafe or a factory or uh, a mine or uh, driving a bus. Um, So I I think we should be cautious in terms of thinking about how the pandemic has affected remote work and work arrangements um, and this, you know, this shift to outcomes rather than time. Um, it is going to continue to describe a relatively small segment of the overall labor market and, uh, frankly, a relatively privileged segment of the overall labor market. It's a, a great irony, I think, that the people during the pandemic who were the most likely to be able to keep their work, to move their work home, yeah. to continue earning their full income, and on top of that, to be able to avoid the risk of contagion by going out and riding a bus and getting to your workplace. Those are the people who, on average, made quite a bit more money than the rest of the workforce. So in a way, we we best protected the people who already had the best jobs, uh, if you like. And in that way, the, the pandemic has had a very disequalizing impact. Um, so even for those who are able to work from home, I, I think that there are clearly some opportunities uh, about that flexibility, but there are some risks. Uh, Rob touched on this uh, idea of uh, output inflation. There's an, another kind of inflation there, which is availability inflation. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of employers are going to be thinking, you know, well, they're just sitting at home watching Netflix. They've got the laptop there anyway. So <laughs> I might as well, I might as well call them or email them or, uh, you know, get them to tweak this report, even though it's 9 p.m., uh, we've heard lots of stories of the, of the expectation that because the boundary between work and home life has been blurred by working from home, uh, there's a certain expectation that people are always available. And I think that's a very slippery slope uh, if this pattern continues after the pandemic. Yeah, sure. And with, you know, th- these anxieties about what people are, inverted commas, up to at home, 
do you think, Rob, that this is going to lead to an acceleration of these sorts of applications of these technologies that we've been talking about in, in the workforce? And, and, and if so, what, what sort of, um, to Nikki's point, what sort of safeguards and checks and balances need to be put in place? Uh, you, you, well, you summed it up at the start, you know, just because we can, should we? Mm. Um, yeah, and the, the, point, the point about the impacts and prevalence of technology and the data intensity that we have goes well beyond, you know, the people, work, people working remotely. Yeah, we're now seeing in, uh, embedded in technology monitoring capability, whether we choose to use it or not, that can determine, um, you know, almost anything from am I actually actively engaged? Am I working, am I looking at the screen? Am I actively engaged on the right sort of emails? Right through to when you go into a supermarket, whether or not the uh, checkout operator is operating in the most efficient manner and getting a throughput that is as efficient as their, um, as the co-workers. Now, at its best, one of the things we've known for a long time is we threw technology into the workplace in everything from the supermarket checkout through to email in the office. And we gave people almost no instruction on what we expected and how we expected them to use it. Yeah. Now, at best, that meant we measured outputs and, and people, some people did fabulously well. At worst, we've left people feeling like they're a slave to, um, to work expectations and work processes, uh, including the, uh, what do you call it, Jim, the availability inflation, where just because I've got the mobile phone, I'm expected to answer it. Have I, have I set the norm around that? Um, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing if employers use information in a way that enables the workplace to work together. It, it, it can even help us to establish better norms, yeah. even more than whether we should, is whether we have genuine transparency on what we're using, what information we're using, why we're using it, and whether or not it's actually an acceptable norm on um, on on using it and does actually does does is there a partnership you yeah if you're if you're exchanging information in the workplace there should be an exchange of value as well if i'm willing to exchange information about my productivity in exchange i should be getting help and expectation to say i'm available at this moment but at other moments i'm not available just because the computer's the computer's always here we enable any organization to use any technology we help all companies become technology companies, protecting the identity of both workforces and customers, connecting the right people to the right technology at the right time. Okta, one trusted platform to secure every identity in your organisation. Can I ask Rob a question? Because I obviously love technology. Do you think corporates are, are ready for it? Like boards are even thinking about how, how, and you, both of you would deal with boards, you know, across the much more industries than, than I would, so, which is why I'm throwing the question to you. Do you think they're actually ready for, for the ethics and the governance and the things that need to come from AI? Because, you know, even though we're talking about it in, in the automation sense or speeding up how the efficiencies work, we're going to start collecting information about our employees that, you know, can be used for bad things. Yeah. Um, and, and often, they, you know, it, it's, it, I kind of feel like it's almost accidental. Oh, we brought this system and we brought this system, but no one actually thought about, well, what's the consequence of that if we're sharing that? Because we know 
you know, we can get some really sensitive information about our employees just from browser history and social media and, mm-hmm. and whatnot. And, and, I, and I guess I find it to your point about what's the give and take that we've got. Like, you know, we don't allow people to use a USB drive, but we want to use biometrics for them to get into the building. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> it doesn't seem fair to me uh, what, we're, what we're asking for. I, I, so first of all, definitely boards are discussing this. This is, this is actually coming up. I'm in a number. Oh, of, great. Yeah. Um, and, and it is, um, you know, something that the Australian Institute of Company Directors is discussing. It's certainly something that comes up in board meetings. It comes up in a lot of executive meetings. The big issue is that we don't have societal norms established. Yeah, it took years. It's taken years and years. And when probably Jim will probably say it's an ongoing journey to say what are general employment norms that we that yeah that we expect, um, and we're going through another re- we're going through another revolution of it. Yeah, if you one of the most common issues you've got is first of all boards and executives trying to come to terms with just what could the technology do. Yeah. Then you go to the what's the purpose. So if you take biometrics, if you if, if you say to me, you know, do I want a, the ability to be able to go about my job without having to remember my security pass, something I personally forget quite often? Um, absolutely. If you say to me, am I okay with my employer um, holding on to information that could one day be used to, um, you know, biomark me to be able to get, uh, to, to be used for um, identity theft um, or any one of another as yet probably uninvented crimes? No, absolutely not. <laughs> How, that that that's a really hard debate, and we're we're at this nexus point where there are things we're doing, the collecting data that we don't necessarily know the consequence of. The number one thing I'm asking people to do is be entirely transparent, and 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 what and why, and yeah, and it's not AI, but a really simple example is browsing history. Um, we know that temptation has resulted in people. Um, getting into enormous trouble or even losing their jobs at work because they've gone to websites that they shouldn't have gone to. Yeah. Uh, you then go and say, well, one of the way, one of the first things you do is you actually say, by the way, does everybody know that your browser at work is part of um, is part of your work and, and, and acceptable work? And by the way, your browsing history is work property. Really, really basic sharing of information like that actually reduces the temptation for people to do the wrong thing in the very first place. Jim, I'd be interested in your perspective because I know you look at it broader across the industrial system. Nikki and Rob have highlighted some, uh, I think, of the emerging risks. And um, I, I am actually a bit dubious that it's just sort of unintended issues that came up kind of accidentally because we threw yeah. these technologies out there without really thinking them through. In many cases, it was a deliberate goal of the application of, tra- of technologies to precisely track and supervise and in some cases discipline uh, workers. And this is, uh, I think, a kind of an underside, uh, a dark underside uh, of the whole digital application in workplaces is the use of digital technology uh, around surveillance, performance management, uh, and even uh, discipline. So uh, I think it's uh, I, I think it's not a, the complete story to say, you know, boards haven't thought through these issues. In some cases, it's managers or uh, potentially boards that are saying, yeah, this is great. We can have keystroke monitors that can tell who's working the fastest and who isn't. Yeah. Uh, Rob mentioned the idea of checkout, supermarket checkouts. That, that's been a, a factor for years where companies used technological tracking of how fast groceries were being scanned. And then they used that data to punish those who were in the lowest cohort or the who were slower than their peers. And or that's an application of the deliberate 
uh, use of uh, technology to intensify work and in a way degrade and discipline uh, the people doing it. And there's lots of ways that those technologies, whether it's um, closed circuit TV or GPS uh, location trackers or webcams uh, that employers are using to monitor what people are doing while they're uh, on work from home uh, arrangements, uh, etc. So uh, it isn't just a question of employers not thinking this through. There are cases where some employers have thought it through, and this is precisely what they're trying to do. And this is where we need certainly an evolution of norms and transparency, but we need something stronger than this. We need, uh, I think, hardcore rights and standards and regulations that specify uh, what uh, protections workers have. Um, there's only one jurisdiction in Australia, and that's New South Wales, that has any provisions in its labor code regarding um, notification and um, uh, some basic protections about uh, workplace digital surveillance. And in New South Wales, it's simply a matter of uh, employers are obliged to let the workers know that they're being surveilled, uh, which is a pretty minimal standard, I think. So. There's a lot of uh, catching up to do, not just in the attitudes of uh, directors and managers, but I think in terms of the actual um, legal and regulatory protections that workers have, mm -hmm. given the potential for abuse of these different technologies. Just, just, just building on that for a second, is it where, where is the line, and, ha and how, how do you find the line? Because if you go, if you go at one extreme, you would say that um, communication we've seen in financial regulation. That there is, well, yeah, I, I don't think it's controversial, a view that um, communication between um, um, operators in the financial system is absolutely belongs to the employer and is absolutely subject to regulation. So effectively, if two traders send the message to each other in a variety of channels, that's, that, that's, that's open game and, and everybody knows it is. If, if, if that's at the okay end, where, where does the line go that you think it, it, it stops being okay? Yeah. Nikki, I'm well, wondering, I, sorry, sorry. Just, just to, Jim, to Jim's point about the need for, you know, a, a lot of serious deep thinking about this issue. Nikki, do you envisage in future um, CIOs like yourself being more um, deeply involved in this conversation and potentially even in the future having to push back against employers that are saying, hey, look, we've got this technology, we can do this with it. That's what I was asking previously about the, the governance and the ethics and the, and the risk management and things that need to come in through a company. Because then when, you know, as a CIO, if you're getting asked to roll something out, there, there's something you can refer to. So, because it's not necessarily, I, I mean, I know we're talking about employee rights here, and but it's also in that in that sales funnel as well of, of, of how are we selling and who are we selling to and, you know, and what are we using to target particular people and, and what are we selling to those people once they're targeted but from a personal um, perspective unless there was those guidelines there I think I'd really struggle with some of the things I mean because with Robert you know was saying before well, what where does that where does that on that continuum where does where are you allowed to kind of bail out and and you know and when I was thinking about this earlier like when we look at what makes somebody productive when we're looking at how quickly they're doing their keystrokes or whatever there's there's a personal life that's happening and then there's a work life and and I mean employers do EAP systems and, and they pat themselves on the back and they say oh we've got this you know employee assistance program for you it's because they want you to be more productive like ultimately that's that sort of comes down there a company is there for a shareholder there's, there's no 
you know, there's nothing dishonest in that. That's what it's for. So, you know, the employee and program programs do that. So, so to me, this is where the data collection and the AI and the different pieces of what we're doing about, you know, how we're monitoring someone's health or family or those sorts of things. And it, under the guise of we're trying to make you happier and healthier at work and we're taking care of your mental health, but really we're capturing a lot of information that in the wrong hands or with the wrong leadership or, or you know, to, to Jim's point, some companies are making hard and fast decisions that this is what they want. Mm. When we hand that over, the horse is the horse is bolted um, and and it, it takes some sort of scandal, I think, sometimes to drag it back to where where that that normal point should be and unfortunately until you know when that happens it's it's all a bit too late and there's damaged people um Mm. there so i think to answer your question this is why i kind of go well where are the standards that you want me to work to whether they're set by a regulator or they're set by the government or um you know by a governance board as to what i'm prepared what i'm prepared allowed to do and then how do we train people to do that properly as well otherwise it it is a bit of a free-for-all and um you know let's let's roll it out and and wait for wait for the problems yeah nikki just building on that for a second the australian computer society has argued for some time that as technology matures that as technology professionals we'll have a responsibility to be to also bring our standards in just just as we do in other professions so yeah we have um, we don't wait for reg- you know jim i, I, mm. I don't agree with what you're saying about regulation but a, a um, professional account yeah you know, a, a chartered accountant doesn't wait for government regulation on accounting standards they actually have professional standards a, a doctor has professional standards where do you think we are at the moment and particularly for you in the cio role as a technology professional in the development of those standards and and if i got three cios together will they have the same professional um, ethical uh, boundaries but I, I dare say everyone's allowed to have different ethics aren't they that's part of free choice but you, your point actually goes again to this fact that the cio role is just getting so much more important within a company yeah. um and this service provider mentality of give me a website you know it, it's so dead now i mean now we're talking about well what's the what's the cio's role in the ethics of of how a company operates and when do you put your hand up and say do you realize what this technology is going to be able to do I mean that's a huge shift for the CIO role so I think it's a shift for individuals in that role and then also of how they're perceived um, uh, you know by the industry and 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 you know by their their peers as to well what's the CIO piping up and talking about ethics you know shouldn't <laughs> go back to go back to you know writing dotnet I mean I you know I'm not sure uh, I think it's a perception and a, and, and a, a shift in the role. Nikki, you you mentioned this concern about the horse the horse about <laughs> to bolt and has it already happened? And Jim, you the other day when probably something that was both extremely alarming and then immediately I was not surprised to hear from you that um, Uber drivers can effectively be fired by and within the app without any human-to-human interaction. Well, in a way, this is the uh, logical extension of a world in which we use uh, digital technology and AI uh, to hire, monitor, supervise, evaluate, and ultimately discipline and even dismiss workers. Uh, so, um, you know, in, in the case of the gig economy and uh, rideshare workers or food delivery workers, 
they can be hired and fired without ever seeing another human being who works for the company. Um, and this is, in a way, an extension of uh, what Rob was saying at the outset about uh, paying for output or paying for performance rather than for time. Uh, Uber drivers are not paid for their time. Uh, in fact, the company pretends they aren't employees at all. The company yeah. pretends that they're, each of them is their own independent business, which, uh, of course, is nonsense in any uh, common understanding of the term. But um, it, to varying degrees, they're getting away with it because of the loopholes in, uh, in Australia's labor law. So um, Uber drivers are particularly vulnerable to this because they don't have the normal rights that come with being an employee, at mm -hmm. least not yet. I think that's going to be challenged. But even for people working in a, a more traditional uh, employee uh, type of arrangement, uh, I think that the, the risks and moral hazards of digital supervision and discipline um, are, uh, are, are very important. And uh, CIOs and directors and managers, I think, should be cognizant of their, uh, I would say, their ethical responsibilities and in many cases their legal responsibilities to uphold uh, the traditional kind of principles of fair human resources management, including things like uh, progressive discipline and making sure that people know where they stand and uh, know what the consequences of different actions are, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, I do think that the the spread of these uh, technologies in workplaces does raise a lot of issues, but in some ways they're familiar issues. They're familiar issues about, you know, who's in charge um, and what rights do the workers have uh, as they go about trying to earn a living. Yeah, and we're seeing in, in the wider um, business community, of course, we're seeing a lot of movement, a lot of legislation around uh, the emancipation of customer data. Um, we're seeing in Australia the, the consumer data right, for instance. And it puts me in mind, Rob, just wanted to go back to something that you mentioned earlier about um, employee data. Who owns the data on employees? I think it's a fascinating question in this broader conversation. And, and we don't actually know the answer to that in, in no. reality. It's, um, uh, in fact, more broadly, um, yeah, the ownership of data is something that is still contested and there's been inadequate um, legal precedents established in you know, right across the board. Um, yeah, just a little piece of um, trivia for you is that uh, yeah, even if you look at something as simple as uh, your name, who, own, who owns your name? Well, um, turns out that there is legal precedent that says that your name is deemed to be poetry and there is no such thing as fair use of poetry in any subset without the owner's, uh, without the owner's permission. Um, that right? how, how that what it actually means for customer relationship management systems and employee um, HR systems um, has not been properly uh, has not been properly tested. More seriously, if I use um, you know, one of the things you know, back to where we started, yeah, the misuse of data, we we know that the problem of sifting through large numbers of employees is so hard, and to try and do fairly that uh, is, is is incredibly hard. And so we turn to AI to help us sift through employee evaluation and employee employment decisions. Yeah. We also know that one of the unintended consequences, and Jim, I'll be optimistic and say unintended consequences, um, is the bias, that human bias that was done at a micro scale has managed to be scaled to a macro scale and find its way systemically through. Yeah. And that has to be massively counted. Uh, for this technology to uh, for this technology to work, but then you go and say, well, well, who owns that trained data set, and what rights have I got if my if if information about my performance or information about my CVs has been embedded in that and was part of the training data that was 
uh, yeah, that was used. We, yeah, we really don't we really don't know the answer to that. And certainly, when you look at um, you know what what could happen in the future if I leave a company and um, and then I go work for another company and then that company gets taken over by the first company I work for, are they able to reuse the data that was actually used to employ me, assess me, and and, and perhaps fire me? Uh, you know, subsequently. Um, yeah, these might sound like obscure examples, but they happen far more often than people um, than people realise. And to Nikki's point, we just don't have the norms in there. But if I take it the other way, one of the things that we've seen um, where survey where data that could be seen as negative in its surveillance has turned out to be utterly life literally life saving yes. in um, employee safety situations so positions of um, fatigue management on um, on workplaces situations in um, dangerous working environments where uh, patterns are identified through AI that um, that enable you to um, to then start to say yeah there's particular position there's particular scenarios where um, where employees will be at significantly more risk mm. after just coming off a break or just coming back from a uh, from a leave or the identity of uh, yeah when they work with a particular type of equipment they're more likely to make a mistake and yeah clearly you know whether that's intrusive or not that's good data to do saving a life is is, is inherently a good thing um, to do from my perspective but rob it all depends on how the data is used and how the policy responses to those correlations uh, are managed so you could have employers take that ability of ai to monitor whether somebody's fatigued or not and use it in a very punitive way to say, look, you came to work too tired. My AI is telling me that your eyes are drifting. Uh, you have to go home without pay. So um, none of these things can be understood in a sort of neutral technical sense yeah. without appreciating and being aware of the power context in which they're applied. Uh, and this is where the, the rights and principles and protections uh, are absolutely essential, no matter how well-meaning it seems that the AI uh, application is, uh, is designed in the first place. Yeah. Which is which is no different to the same debate that we've had, um, you know, on um, health data, medical data, um, and Nikki on insurance data. Uh, yeah, and insurance wearables. I mean, I know that. I mean, that's a big, that's a big moving market there. And and you know, who gets to determine whether you're living a healthy lifestyle? You know, yes. going to bed after midnight might be perfectly fine. You know, yeah. so. But someone somewhere is sitting there want judging you, that. I don't want, I, I, even if it's not fine, I want it to be my decision. Yeah, right? it's your choice. If you want to have that drink, like you don't want an insurance company to knock you back down the track for, for, uh, to the point before you came to work fatigued or, or you didn't get enough sleep the night before your car accident. I mean, we're, it's, a, it's, a, it's a difficult line that we're, we're um, opening up. Well, speaking of those technologies that give you that sort of personal insight, Nikki, I mean, yeah, you, you are looking at, uh, you have already started deploying sensors within your market, within your customer base. Um, is that that larger leap to potentially consider having sensors in the workforce in certain circumstances? Sorry to put you on the spot with such a heavy question. But... <laughs> <laughs> well, look, where we are doing some some stuff that's quite good. I mean, they're not wearable devices, but it's 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 tracking and 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 we will use it to identify um fraud or incident and and that's for you know people that are um in dangerous situations and the corporates pay for that you know yeah. for when they're traveling and 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 that's all good news 
story, right? Whether the corporates then go, well, actually they went here and they went there and that's a that's a different thing, but we're not handing that over. Uh, we're not doing wearables, but I know, you know, wearables and the insurance thing, I mean, we've been talking about that for, for a long time and, and, yeah, you know, claims getting knocked back or guidance as to how people should be living their lives is good. And, and I, again, it comes back to what I, what I struggle with is, is somebody else is making this decision for us and a corporate's there to, to take care of the corporate, not necessarily the individual, regardless of what the marketing says. So, uh, you know, we just have to really think about it uh, ahead of time about what, what, what's our real objective of, of giving this technology. Is it, to, to, is it wearable to keep somebody alive or is it so we can, we can cut back on our payments on claims, you know, reduce our loss ratio? Yeah. And Jim, you, you've spent a considerable period of your career and I, I consider one of the experts on, on particularly on surveillance technology and how that needs to be viewed within the workforce. But you've also, in recent years, um, written a number of papers and have done a lot of deep thinking, no doubt, about robotics and, and robots. And of course, they're coming into this conversation. In a, and I'm just wondering what your thoughts are about, you know, particularly this sort of ongoing theme about um, technologies like AI and machine learning, which of course are going to be intrinsic to smarter robots, augmenting human intelligence and human endeavour. Um, if we are thinking about a future whereby people are potentially working side by side with robots, what does the future of work look, look, look like there in the context of this conversation? Well, the doomsday prophecies that we hear so often about robots are that... Give, give it to us. We want that. <laughs> people, people won't be working side by side with robots. The robot will be working and they'll be out on the street uh, having been displaced by the robot. You know, and there are obviously some particular applications where major displacements of labor resulting from automation are possible. But it's not the normal, uh, the normal uh, phenomena in general. Um, both the rollout of automated technologies in workplaces has been slower and more gradual than, you know, some of the so-called futurists uh, have predicted in their uh, in their very shocking books uh, about the topic. And of course, the thing you can't predict is all of the different types of new work that get opened up because of the applications of uh, of new technology. So. Um, in general, I'm less concerned about the labor displacing uh, effects of, of robotics, that is uh, the impact on the quantity of work. I am uh, more concerned about getting a good balance on the impacts on the quality uh, of work. Uh, automation can make your job, you know, safer, more creative by taking the routine tasks out of the out of the picture and allowing you to do more gratifying things. That's possible. Automation can also make your job miserable and and monitored and intensified and less safe because of repetitive strange injuries and uh, other consequences. Uh, also, the mental stresses that can happen with uh, the extent to which automated technologies speed up work and eliminate non-value added time. So, you know, the extreme example there is a worker in a uh, partly automated Amazon warehouse where yeah. they've got wearables that direct them to pick up the next box. Uh, they've got uh, all kinds of electronic monitoring of their performance and they're vulnerable uh, to performance management or even dismissal if they don't meet the benchmarks and uh, all kinds of physical and mental um, health injuries resulting from that application of, uh, of technology. So we don't want that. Now, how do we not get that? Well, there's got to be limits on how companies like Amazon are allowed to apply those technologies in workplaces. And uh, workers in Amazon warehouses have to have uh, some kind of bargaining power, some kind of say in how these technologies roll out in those workplaces so that 
uh, we get more of the positive benefits and opportunities mm-hmm. and uh, less of that degrading intensification, uh, mm-hmm. which uh, we also see. So I don't think uh, robots and automation are the problem. I don't think they're the solution either. Uh, we've we've got the same old issues about, you know, who's in charge of the workplace and how, how do we balance the interests of the employers in a very efficient, productive and profitable operation and the interests of the workers in uh, a safe and enjoyable and secure job. And those two do not always go hand in hand. And it takes some, you know, some tussling and some conversations and some negotiation uh, to get to a position that meets both sides needs. Can I, can I just be an optimist for a second, though? Because if you... No, hang on a sec, Rob, that wasn't part of the deal. No, go on. <laughs> <laughs> the, the point about the quality of the of the job is really important. If I, and, and if I look at the, the great sweep of Trent over a, over a long period of, over a long period of time, yeah, right since the start of mechanization, the best jobs, I would argue, were the ones where people got to work on the machines. And that was they actually designed, they drove machines, the engineers, they, 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 because they controlled the, the, the situation. And I, and I think that that has continued all the way now. More and more jobs are being created where the people are controlling, designing, developing, teaching, guiding the machines, everything from programmers right through to trainers and, and, and certain types of uh, contact centre work. The next group are the ones that work with the machines. So they're people who are working, who are genuinely working side by side as equals. We're seeing a lot of medical profession are getting guided, supported by machines. Those, those are good jobs, better when they get to do the, uh, to get on top of and shape. The jobs that um, are challenged are the jobs where you work for the machines. So where you, know, where you are scheduled by a machine, where you're told what to do, where you're marginalised in some way by the machine, yeah. those are the jobs. Now, automation done well enables us to move the quantity of jobs up. And, I, and I'm not for a moment getting to the basis saying that you don't want to regulate and manage. Uh, but, but what I would like to see as an optimist is more and more jobs moving up that value chain. Well, you're an optimist, Rob. I'm an economist. Uh, that makes me a pessimist. They don't, they don't call us the dismal science for nothing okay so uh and you're right you know there's obviously different levels of quality and security and enjoyability depending where you fit into that hierarchy but i i think what the point that you've missed is that the number of jobs that are associated with working on the machines uh, is very small in the grand scope of things Uh, and if we look at where the actual new jobs are being created in australia and where they're expected to be created over the next uh, decade based on the government and industry forecasts, it isn't coders and programmers and engineers and designers. Yeah, there are some jobs uh, in that area, but they're a very small proportion of the total number of jobs uh, that are gonna be created. What are the new jobs gonna be? Two big areas. Number one, human and caring services. So by far and away, the biggest source of new employment in Australia is in teachers, nurses, care aides, social service workers, and other jobs where you work in a relatively low tech environment. I'm not saying there's no technology involved, but you're working with people. That's by far the biggest source. The second biggest source of new work is low tech private services. Uh, So look for truck drivers, cleaners, retail clerks, uh, and others. So for both of those groups that dominate future job creation, this whole debate about, you know, are you working on the machines or with the machines or under the machines is irrelevant. Those are the, that's where the majority of the work is. And that's where this whole discourse about how technology is reshaping our, our workplace in a way is actually missing what's, what's actually evolving. Our, our economy and our labor market is surprisingly low tech 
Yeah. Given all of the hype that's out there about robots and AI and machine learning, I just no, I, I have to spread. I'm going to throw a Nikki on it as a warning to give you a heads up. Because so if I look at look at the number of jobs that have been created, let's let's take two two examples: contact centres and teaching. Um, so you're absolutely right. The traditional way both jobs have been done has been relatively low tech, but increasingly high tech. At their most negative. Both are professions that can be monitored and could end up working for the machine. So, Jim, you're absolutely spot on. That's that's the danger. Let's take the optimistic. Um, now, caring professions, where we're using, where we've got working through those in caring or providing providing service, increasingly we're using AI to be able to curate content. So you want a contact center operator operating in an insurance call center, for, for instance, to be um, not to be doing providing the same answer 20 times but rather to be running the exception when the, the automated information could not provide the customer with information they needed and then be discovering the, uh, discovering the solution and encoding that in. They are as much at working on the machine when they're coding it in and training the AI as a traditional programmer is. That's why I think those jobs move up. Similarly of teaching, the great disruption of the pandemic has said, actually, if we are teaching remotely, uh, literally around the world, millions of teachers are having to find electronic content, which they're then curating. Increasingly, they are working on the machine on that curation, and that will become professionalised, and they will become far more about driving out or working with the machine as coaches of the individual. So, Nikki, I'm, I'm, I'm yeah, interested in your view of, uh, yeah, yeah. Am, am I overly optimistic, as, as Jim's suggesting, in terms of you know, whether more and more of the jobs yeah, it can be on the machine and trainers rather than. Ah, <laughs> oh, look, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do something I never do, which is fence it, because I every time both you of you talk, I sit no. here and I nod my head and I go, oh, great point, great point. <laughs> uh, I throw chatbots in the in the call center for sure, Robert. <laughs> we can cut down then. But um, uh, look, I, look, I'm optimistic. I'm I'm a technologist, right? So I love all the changes and things that are coming through um and and so i'm optimistic about that it that it will make some jobs better and it and it and it will lift um you know the satisfaction that comes through but but again i just you know i hold that optimism with some parameters around it with those the with the rights and the ethics and the things that need to be rolled out at the same time so i'm 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 agreeing with both of you because you're both raising really valid points i'm going to run towards the technology but i want guidelines as to what what what's okay to do and what's not okay to do because well, one, I might think my ethics are great, but someone else might disagree or, or you know, so I think there needs to be guidelines as we, we, we run with the tech. So maybe there's a risk there's too many optimists in charge and not enough economists. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I'm always optimistic with technology, but I, I do have this little voice that always says it will always be used for bad first before it gets used for good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe I've watched Skynet. You know, I've watched. You know, I'm a bit Skynet or something. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, just think about the internet. Well, I mean, that's a fascinating conversation um, that is far from over. Thank you all so much for for being part of it, and look forward to having you back on the CIO show again very soon. Thank you. Thank David. you. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it. In today's complex, evolving cybersecurity environment. Organizations with the biggest targets on their heads can't afford not to employ 
dedicated data security experts, such as chief information security officers or people with similar titles, not only to keep the organization safe from malicious actors, and of course, complacent staff, but also to ensure adherence to the latest laws, regulations, and compliance requirements around the handling of data. But what about CIOs at small organizations? If only the biggest can afford to employ a CISO and a CIO, does that mean the latter are having to take on more responsibility in addressing their employer's cybersecurity? The obvious answer to that question is no doubt yes. In our next episode, we'll be talking to CIOs as well as analysts about today's more complex and dangerous cybersecurity environment and the sort of steps tech leaders without dedicated security experts need to be taking today. We hope you can join us.